This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. About eight months ago, Mark Galley and I recorded episode 160 on Jean Vanier, a Canadian Catholic who was the founder of L'Arche, a global community where abled people lived alongside those with disabilities. In the podcast, I discussed his integrity, and I mentioned that I got the impression that Vanier really lived what he preached. I said this, that basically... That kind of tension that I see in lots of people between almost picking one or other sometimes feels much more unified in him. This past week, I learned I was wrong. According to a report released by L'Arche International over the weekend, over a 30-year span, multiple women told an investigative team about experiences of sexual assault with Jean Vanier. I'm going to quote from this report. The relationships involved various kinds of sexual behavior, often combined with so-called mystical and spiritual justifications for this conduct. The report went on to say that they provided, and by they meaning these women, quote, sufficient evidence to establish that Jean Vanier engaged in manipulative sexual relationships with at least six adults, not disabled women. This number does not presume that there were no other cases but takes into account spontaneously received testimony. So this news comes at a time when there are many who are undoubtedly exhausted about the number of scandals and exploits of high-profile leaders. The near-universal praise with which John Vanier's life was celebrated makes this even harder. And we wanted to discuss how to process the seemingly never-ending bad news of disappointing Christian leaders without losing your faith. Today is Wednesday, February 26th, and you are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes as a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson. I'm editorial director at Christianity Today. All right, Ted. What a sunny topic we have today, just after our last sunny topic of spiritual abuse. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's been that kind of week. All right. So yeah, give me your gut check. How are you feeling? Uh, when I saw this news, I, I wept. I, I'm not a, I'm not a weepy guy. I'm not a crying guy, but this one hit a little hard and it wasn't, I mean, I'm sure it's hard to pull out all the emotions that make you actually break out in tears. But there was a line in one of the stories and that got repeated by a few people on Twitter from one of the women who was who was abused. And it was she talked about the difficulty in being abused by someone that everyone kept referring to as a living saint. And as someone I think I've even talked about it on this podcast, there was a a period a, a few years ago where every day for a month I came to work and warned about another moral failure, usually uh, of a Christian leader. Seriously, it started off as a week and it was like a, a terrible week. It was like, I'm glad that week's over. And then the next week it just kept going. And then I kept coming in every day saying, I hope that today is a day that I don't have to deal with this. It was very difficult to my faith, uh, not my faith in God, but you know, the big question that I had for, for God was, are there any Christians? Do leaders actually believe this stuff? 
And that was difficult for me to go find those people uh, for whom I could say, okay, I, I, I know this guy extremely intimately and I know that he's a real Christian. And again, it was a little harder for me to know leaders because I just don't, I'm not with them 24 hours a day. That took, that took a while to come back from that, that question. And this kind of hit that question again. Like I've, I'm, I'm, it hit me as someone who went through that question. So it didn't reopen that question for me, but it did hit me as like, this will open that question for so many people. And so many people will answer that question. No, I don't think that there are any real Christians. And that, <laughs> ideally not going to cry on this podcast, but that actually hit me uh, in a way uh, really hard just to realize that people would have a hard time maintaining their faith that Christianity is real and that the people who proclaim it believe it. It hit me in a, in a, a sensitive spot. You know, one thing that I think has long been so remarkable about Jean Vanier when we've thought about him up until more things were revealed this past weekend was his attitude towards people that were extremely vulnerable. And I think about all the eloquent interviews and readings that I'd done about him over the years and how much I felt very convicted a lot of times about how I treat people that are weaker or vulnerable and about how I truly believed that his life had kind of been extremely countercultural to ours, especially ours that really seems to celebrate people with strength and might and power. I feel like something like this feels even worse of a betrayal. Like, for instance, can I now even not quote what he was saying about this type of stuff? Because he's basically turned what he wanted to stand for into some sort of thing that's a little bit farcical now, I know. right? Yeah. And that, to me, seems even crueler. I mean, Again, we'll get into this on the show today about like the levels of maliciousness that go on, the levels of sin that are there. But the idea that someone who was a spark and hopefully even more of a catalyst to get people to rethink about how they saw people with disabilities and how they viewed them just kind of especially angers me here because for the you know for instance when we were when we did this podcast we had someone who had basically spent their life studying Vanier's work right okay that's amazing and then i i i know this i'm not trying to pretend that there this is not even worse for the victims but what i'm trying to say here is that like what happens to all of that type of thinking that people have done about how to better care for this particular community right absolutely and the related things i mean i went to a book discussion group with people in my church that you know the night after this broke you know, it was this book that was not on intellectual disabilities. It was about hospitality, a lovely book called, I believe, Making Room. But it's got a blurb from Vanier on the cover. It's got an introduction. You know, he's, he's all through that book. When we started the book discussion group, it was like, I, I'm just not in the mood to talk about this book. You know, like, like it's soiled. It's soiled by how, how much it's pulling from examples from his life. So we, we eventually did, you know, we mm-hmm. were able to set that aside. But yeah, I think it's, it's a lot of conversations I think are at least right now, muddied, you know, and, and unfortunately these things have a way of, we set them aside and, and because they're hard to look at and then we just kind of bury them rather than mm-hmm. go head on. So I'm grateful that we're taking some time on this podcast to say, eh, let's not set it aside and wait for the next, you know, moral failure crisis uh, to reopen those questions. Let's, let's go right at it now. Well, and I just had wanted to add that one thing about the victims, which is, I think my initial instinct, right, is to be like, this is so sad because I love John Vanier, right? right? And I think you and I talked about this yesterday. There's a particular part in the report that mentions that these women lived with this trauma that happened to them for years, right? And so 
I just know that's not even my tendency. My tendency is almost to feel sorry for myself. Like, I just lost a hero that I really appreciated as opposed to, wow, I'm grieving that at least six women basically had significant parts of their lives destroyed. And it's hard to sometimes even for me to show hospitality and to make space for that. That's the Mm -hmm. real tragedy, right? Like, I mean, even how these articles are located, right? John Vanier is revealed about this versus six women's lives are destroyed. And now we know about it, right? Like that's even the framing of that can sometimes get thrown off. Anyway, Ted, who is here to join us today? I am thrilled that we have Ruth Haley Barton joining us today. She is the founder of the Transforming Center, an ecumenical leadership organization locally here in the Chicago area. She is spiritual director, teacher, and retreat leader, and was trained at the Shalem Institute for Spiritual Formation and the Loyola University Chicago Institute for Pastoral Studies. She also holds a Doctor of Divinity from Northern Seminary. One of the reasons uh, we were eager to talk with her uh, was because of a book that she wrote several years ago called Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership, and she's got a, uh, some other uh, good books out. Invitation to Retreat is her most current one, and Equal to the Task is one that she has done before that she tells us is being reworked and will be soon re-released. So thanks for being here, Ruth. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Wow. All right, Ruth. Well, I think you know you have your work cut out for you wow. in this conversation. But I think you had a sense here listening to how Ted and I are kind of viscerally processing this. And I'm just wondering maybe if you can tell us about the first experience where you felt really let down or betrayed by a Christian leader you admired or respected. Well, for me, the one that I remember most clearly was when Gordon McDonald revealed his moral failing. And I remember I was a young woman, a young wife at that time. And maybe just share who he was for uh, Gordon McDonald, a pastor and, a, and an author who wrote a book that many of us loved back then called Ordering Your Private World. When the news came out that he had been unfaithful to his wife in their marriage in a consensual affair, I believe. But anyway, at that point, I was just filled with so much fear that, oh my goodness, if this can get him, it can get all of us. And for me, that was a moment like, you know, you remember where you were when you heard that Kennedy was shot. For me, you remember where you were when, on the day that you heard that Gordon McDonald had had a moral failing because I, I really looked up to him and especially this idea of having an ordered private world, you know, a, a world that is ordered where it enables you to be God's person in the world. And it caused a great deal of fear around this whole issue of sexuality as well, that if it can get a man like that, it can get any of us. And I remember being sparked to just build all these boundaries around my marriage, all these hedges around my marriage, and couldn't even have a relationship with another man. And it was like, wow, just the the fear that was instilled at that time in those of us who were young leaders who really wanted to do it right. How do you remember it affecting your prayer life or how you saw God? I mean, I think it causes causes self-doubt. I think that what it did most was to cause me to be doubtful about my own ability to live a moral life, doubtful about the people around me. I don't even think really honestly at the time, I don't even think I prayed about it. It just mm-hmm. was so shocking that I just started building hedges is right. what I started doing. Right. Don't need to talk about God about this. I just need to start building hedges. <laughs> there's, a, there's a spookiness to it. And I, I do wonder... How this hits, and you know, it seems to hit leaders a little bit differently, and and communities matter too, right? McDonald hit really hard. I know you you run a lot in kind of spiritual direction circles, yeah. and I'm sure you know. I mean, Vanier is a name that I hear a lot in kind of right. the spiritual direction mm-hmm. circles. So I, I just know that this is hitting that community, you know, especially hard because you know here's someone that you know people quote and have learned a lot from, and it is that it's like what <laughs> people look for immediate takeaways, like what what do I do to not to not go this way. 
And then, of course, Henry Nouwen was very shaped right. within that community and through John Vanier's leadership. So then that causes you to wonder about that, too. And probably even more of us quote Henry Nouwen than quote John Vanier. Right. <laughs> well, and it's interesting, you know, we, we, in the news stories about, about Vanier, and we'll, we'll talk you know, about more than just Vanier. But I, you know, in, in reading through the news, you know, part of the news about Vanier was related to several years ago in 2015, there were revelations about his own mentor leader who had been extremely influential in, in, in founding LARC and also in, in the, um, the group of the, this kind of the spiritual community that Vanier was part of. As revelations came out about that, Vanier was still alive. And he wrote this letter that you can you know, find online because it was part of the, the discussion in 2015. And I've got a quote here. You know, there is a tremendous gap between, on one hand, the serious nature of these acts that generated such suffering in the victims, and on the other hand, the action of God in me and in Lark through Pear Thomas. I am unable to peacefully reconcile these two realities. All I can say is I do not understand. And I read that and I, you know, oh man, my heart broke again. I'm like, you know, I, 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 get, I get the I do not understand. I mean, obviously he was engaged in the, in the same behavior. And so in one, in one sense, he, he understood these two realities extremely well. And on the other hand, I'm sure there's an element of, of Paul's line, you know, I do not understand uh, what I do in that, in that line. There's a lot of meaning in that uh, saying, I, I'm un, unable to peacefully reconcile these two realities. And all I can say is I do not understand. I think that's how many of us feel uh, this week. I think, too, because this is following on the heels of so many revelations, that there's no way to even talk about this as being one thing, one incident, because it just it's a part of a larger whole that that is really painful. And I think many of us right now just walk around with a low level of pain about what's happening among Christian leaders right now. And not only this, you know, the sin factor, the the destruction in the lives of people who have been victimized in this way, but also generally, what does it mean about the church that these things can go on in the church writ large Catholic? Protestant, you know, Southern Baptist. I mean, it doesn't even matter. Writ large, we're struggling with the issue of sexuality and power and relationships between men and women. And who will we be when all this is over? I think it raises even bigger issues than any one particular incident with one particular person. There's this general thing that's happening that we simply have to pay attention to and try to discern what is God doing and saying in all of this. You work with a lot of Christian leaders and, and different you know, pastors and other, other ministry leaders and other Christian leaders. What's kind of the typical range of responses when there is a, a case like this for for leader for Christian leaders? Is it is it anger? Pain, you know, is it anger? Is it a whole mix of stuff? Is it the whole stages of grief all at once? What's the uh, what do, what do you typically hear? It is anger, and I also think though it's it's deeply unsettling around the questions of who we are as human beings and who are our leaders. And if we're at all awake and aware at all, we think, could that happen to me? I mean, there's fear. I think fear is huge in this conversation and it's hard to face it. It's hard to face how fearful we feel. You know, could something like this happen to us? So for a male pastor could either, either do I have this sort of stuff going on in my life? Is any, is there anything about this that characterizes me? But then could I be falsely accused? There's a whole world of fear that they have. You know, women have another experience because um, most women who have been around the leadership ministry block have had some, some of these kinds of experiences and it touches old experiences. It does make you angry. It touches your vulnerability. The questions of, did I do something to cause that? I mean, it just takes you to these primal places. I think anger is a surf in, in some ways a surface emotion. I think there's deeper ones that we walk into, and I think fear. I think fear is a big one. You know, I, I, I 
I've just been talking with my wife and some friends and everyone had to, you know, talked about their anger. And then, you know, people kind of went from there into other places, either deep sadness or I guess on the outrage front, I, you know, this, we talk, we talk so much. I feel like outrage is outrage and fear. We, we talk about them like every day here at CT. I'm almost tired of talking about them, except that like, you're right. They're, we, they're so <laughs> key that like, we have to kind of talk about them almost every day because they are driving so much of what we're, what we're engaging with. So, I th- I, I'm hearing people talk about two different kinds of questions about how, you know, wondering how they should respond. And I guess there's two different scales. One is this scale of, of question, question about like the nature of the offense. And then the other one is what we talked about a second ago with kind of the prominence or the position of, of the person. So like on the nature of the offense, you know, some, someone was telling me about like almost the guilt that they felt in their reaction because when they saw that it was Jean Vanier and Lark, their initial assumption, they saw the headline, their initial assumption was that this behavior had been with mentally disabled women in, in that community. And then when they found out it was with women that he'd worked with, the assumption was that it was consensual. And then when it, they kept reading and said, oh, it, okay, it was it was not with developmentally disabled people, but it was also non-consensual. They're like, man, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm feeling whiplash of being like super angry, kind of relieved really angry again and then wondering like <laughs> sin is sin like mm-hmm. should i even be having these different kinds of reactions about yeah, like are there levels are there levels <laughs> yeah are there levels and like should i calibrate my outrage to those levels and then i think the other one is that question of of prominence like you know there's that james says you know not many of you should wish to be you know teachers and leaders cuz you'll be judged more harshly and and you know jesus of course has the line about better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck than to lead little ones astray that you have an influence over. And the, that, that question of, yes, you know, we're all sinners, but it does seem like the consistent message of the New Testament is, yeah, we're all sinners. But if you're in a position of leadership, if you are being, if you are teaching people how to live holy lives or exemplifying that holy life in some way, yeah, there's like massive judgment and much harsher judgment. And it's kind of okay to get, you know, to, to be additionally angry at that. I don't know. I don't have great answers to that. Like, so how, in terms of anger, in terms of disappointment, to what degree do I hold, like, sin is sin? And, you know, all of it disconnects me from God to, like, this is really bad and this is not just sin. Well, one thing that occurs to me relative to this is I think, you know, there's sexual sin that might have been something that you sort of fell into because your passions overtook you. And that's, I think, people's fear that, you know, these sexual passions can overcome us. But in this one, you have to add power to it. I mean, you have to add the issue of power, which definitely adds another set of weight and and gravitas to it. Then the prominence becomes another one. And then even the self-deception. I mean, what the letter that you read seems to indicate a certain level of self-deception because he was having such a problem with it in his mentor, but he clearly these behaviors were going on in his own life. And so there was a level of self-deception going on as well. So that's several different things right there that all come together in this one incident. And, and it is it is really disillusioning. Uh, it's very disillusioning. And these kinds of sins and patterns have to be dealt with on all of those levels if they are to be dealt with. So it's it's pretty challenging. I th- I think you know another another emotion that this brings us in touch with or another experience is is the human experience, the fragility, the vulnerability, the the mixed nature of the human experience. And of course, someone who works in the area of spiritual direction, one of the things that we do most is to create a non-judgmental environment where people can be with what's happening in their souls, even the hard things, even the dark things. I mean, that's prerequisite for even entering into spiritual direction is that you're willing to allow someone else to be privy to all aspects of the self. So I am really comfortable in 
sitting in these spaces with people. But this kind of a, a revelation brings us also in touch with our humanity, I think. The complexity of the human experience for all of us. If we let it touch us on those levels, we realize, no, we're not really all beyond many of these things. We might do it in more subtle ways, but this is the human experience. And it's vulnerable and it's fragile and it's mixed and it's complicated and awful. <laughs> and we share it. On, on the spiritual direction front, I mean, like, you know, how, how what's the direction? And you came across a news story like this. I mean, is, obviously there's a, you know, there's all sorts of things that one can do and one hopes that one does them all. But, uh, you know, I, I do struggle with, with even just in editing Christianity today. Like, what do we want readers to do once they've read this story? I think, you know, we don't want to be, you know, we don't want to put action points at the end of a story. We think different people can fruitfully engage with, you know, do different things after reading an article like this. But, you know, there's, it does seem to me one of the things is, you know, self-reflection. One of the things is just immediate, you know, prayer, you know, God help, help these, help these victims. Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. One of the things is to just talk, you know, talk about it with somebody as, as, but I mean, you know, what, when someone kind of brings this in the context of one of your conversations, like where do you start that conversation? Like what's the first place to go to? I think that this kind of a story points out to a great lack in our own dealing with issues of sexuality and power within the church in general. I think that what's happening right now that is starting to feel very routine is pointing to the fact that the church has done a very poor job. The church writ large, big C, has done a very poor job of dealing with issues of sexuality and spirituality and power. We just don't talk about them. And we haven't helped our leaders and our clergy know how to be with themselves around these issues. So in spiritual direction, and this is one of the big reasons why I think leaders need a spiritual director, is that if you have a good spiritual director that you trust and who does create the safe space, you would be bringing these things into spiritual direction with someone who knows how to guide you in looking at issues of sexuality and spirituality. And I am aghast that more seminaries do not require a course on sexuality as it relates to pastors who are preparing for ministry and doing what it takes for people to come into a positive, healthy relationship with their own sexuality, where they're able to be with these inner dynamics that are powerful for all of us, learn how to be with God with that, learn how to experience our sexuality and our spirituality as being dynamics of the human person that are closely aligned within us. So when one wakes up, the other one's going to wake up. So a deeply spiritual person is is probably going to be very sexual as well because those two aspects of the human person lie very close together in the human person. But who talks about that? Who teaches that? Who helps people who are preparing for ministry to actually be healthy in the area of, of their sexuality? And then you add to that that in this case, I mean, if it's Catholic in particular, then we elevate celibacy as being the highest expression of spirituality. But our sexuality is so powerful that it's going to come out sideways most of the time if we don't have adequate expression for it. And these are systemic realities. These are systemic realities that we are not addressing very well. We are producing this this kind of difficult situation. If we don't believe that, we're not, we don't have our eyes open because the sheer regularity and routine nature of this right now is showing us that something is missing within the church and how we deal with this in the church and how we prepare our leaders and how we resource them to deal with themselves and the, the, the most important aspects of themselves while they are in ministry. So that's where I go to is to say, man, what are we doing as the Christian community to prepare us all to really deal with our sexuality in a healthy way? And then also to talk about issues of power and how that often can with our sexuality because power and sexuality are also really closely aligned in how they express themselves. And in this case, the misuse of power, using one's power to seduce someone who is subordinate to you. And then when you're a spiritual leader, using spirituality and spiritual ideas to actually cause someone 
to move into these behaviors with you. That is really tragic. It's really tragic. And that was one of the most striking aspects of this story for me is that there was a spiritualizing saying, this is a spiritual thing we're doing. This is an expression of our spirituality. This is Mary and Jesus. Like, wow, that is manipulation. That is a misuse of spiritual authority in a person's life. Right. Yeah. This is, yeah, I'm, I'm being Jesus to you somehow. Yes. This is the way I will be. This is how you this respond to me. mediating our, our yeah. the God connection. It's mm-hmm. uh, insane. So I wish, I, I'm thinking, I don't think Jean Vanier would have had a spiritual director and gotten away with this. Yeah. Like if he had a spiritual director and was actually bringing his true and his false self to that spiritual director, I doubt these things would have happened, at least not over the long haul and in this, this sort of long-term routine sort of way. I hear you. I, I also think like, man, it's, I, I just know from reports that we've done here at CT, it's really hard to get pastors even to find someone to talk to about pornography. You know, it seems like that's an easier conversation than to talk, to talk about, you know, power and sexuality and, and, and some of those things. Where does that, I mean, how do you know, how, how do you, it seems like there's a whole host of helping pastors find a place to be comfortable yeah, and vulnerable it, that, that before, I mean, it just seems like there has to be so many things, there's so many things paving the road to that conversation. Well, it makes me wonder, like, is it a, is it a space that they need? Is it a vocabulary that we need to talk about these types of things? Is it a, a normalizing of something that's going on? Is it a self-awareness? And I know you're both saying that it's like very multifaceted. It's all that. Yes. That. Yes. Mm-hmm. I just think about how even just categories of sin sometimes bring awareness to things that are going on in our own life that we might just say are bad habits, you know, as opposed to disobedience and how that can be illuminating. And I don't know to what extent what we're seeing here is maybe something that has not been as publicly defined or available for people to to name what is yeah. exactly happening to yeah. them. Yes, I think that is true. And not just the, the darker elements, but I think that we lack a positive theology, a positive way of being with our sexuality. So it's all just shameful. So we're going to repress it all and not talk to anybody about it to call out a positive conversation about our sexuality and what are the positive expressions of our sexuality? How can we experience the power of our sexuality as being a created good? How do we experience that? How do men experience that? How do women experience that? And then when we understand the sexual dynamic in a deeply positive way, I think that changes the conversation too and makes it more okay to talk about it. And then what are the positive expressions of that? What are the negative expressions of that? Those those should be routine conversations for people who are in ministry, who are working in any helping profession. So in my training as a spiritual director and in my training in seminary, I just had, I had, thanks be to God, excellent coursework and excellent teachers that guided me and us into positive discussions and conversations about sexuality and how to be with those aspects of ourselves and be with those aspects of ourselves with others. Clearly, I mean, I think that would have probably been missing here. So one place that we talk about a lot of times when we talk about how do we start opening the door to that is to talk about weakness, you know, like to that pastors and, and other Christian leaders need to be more open to leading with their weakness, to finding God's strength in their weakness. You know, in some ways, I got to say, you know, this is one of the things that's in the mix. Like when I think about you know, if I were going to write a book about like leading with weakness, you know who would be a pretty prominent person in that book? Jean Vanier. And so I'm right now, I'm in this, I mean, that is, he went, he went and, you know, and, and, and on Renown, the same kind of, I mean, he obviously, you know, 
not not broken to the same level, but like the, you know, the LARC community being a place where it's like I'm going to, I could, I could, I could be a super achiever, but instead I'm going to commit myself to this community of of people who are who have significant disabilities. You know, there's there's a lot of hope there. There's a lot of there's there's something there that I want to emulate. There's something there that I'm like, yes, there's an answer there. I find myself. I, you know, I, my wife and I on, on Saturday morning, you know, I'm like, man, I have a temptation just to go to my kids and be like, hey, kids, don't have heroes. And she's like, oh, don't do, don't do that. And I'm like, no, I know. I'm not saying that's from a healthy place, but I'm saying like that's, you know, that's my the dark side of me w- wants to like protect my kids from heroes that are going to, you know, that have potential to destroy their faith. How do we how do we bring in um, uh, this sense of having spiritual heroes and also the sense of having heroes at the same time when we're trying to lead with our weakness, right? Because heroes, we often see people who are strong, who have something that we want, not necessarily someone who is like, oh, I want to be broken like that person is broken. Well, in this case, someone like Jean Vanier, he wasn't leading with his weakness, he was hiding. Yes. You know, and I think there's a really profound difference there because I think if he had been more open with somebody, this pattern wouldn't have been able to continue. So he wasn't leading with weakness. He was hiding his weakness. And I think there is a major difference there. He was leading with different, <laughs> leading with different weaknesses, right? He was yeah. hiding, he was hiding the biggest weaknesses. Right. Yeah. Right. right. I don't know, Ted, I wanted to go back to your point about heroes. I think in general for me, I try to actually give up the idea of heroes personally and much more see people as capable of doing good or bad things rather than even seeing people as being good or bad people. And at least to me, that's allowed me to kind of admire what people have done almost in spite of themselves. A lot of times they're kind of reframing, I guess, how I'm going to balance people. But almost that I never want to think of someone as being a good person because it doesn't allow for, it only allows my opinion of them to drop over time rather than just kind of being like a prereq thing of there's going to be stuff about them that I don't admire and I don't like. And also I'm really fascinated because they managed to do something extraordinary. And I'm pretty sure if I looked at anyone, I know this may not actually be a helpful thing. And I think it was actually interesting when we were talking about a couple of minutes ago of not wanting to flatten people too, right. To just kind of, there's some good things and there's some bad things about people, partially just because it almost disrespects the nature of harm that people can add onto each other. So I'm not saying that that is a perfect solution. I'm just saying as someone who's worked in the news industry for Mm -hmm. seven years, it's hard to go about that other and another way. I don't know even if you've had particular eras in your time as a journalist where you've chosen to use different philosophies to see people through. Well, there's that tension between put not your faith in princes, including princes of the church, and Paul's follow me as I follow Christ. Both of those are inspired scriptures. I think both of them have truths to them. There's a 12-step, you know, community saying of, you know, find someone who wants what you have. And of course, in a 12-step community, everyone's, you know, leading with their their brokenness. And so it's, you know, there's not like a sense of like this person's going to be a perfect person. And, you know, a sponsor only needs to be like a little bit ahead of you in the program. There's something there's something to that of someone who wants what you have without necessarily assuming that they've got it all all together. And I mean, that's where the people that I've kind of held on to in those periods when I'm like, are there I, I trust that God is always good and God is the only perfect person. I also want to have a knowledge that God has not just given us a gospel 
for <laughs> that will be nice in the sweet by and by and in eternity that there is that there is a lived reality right here and now that we are not going to do perfectly but that we can actually kind of take steps of doing. And I want to find people who are kind of making good steps of doing them and that are like doing better than me at them. I do not want to be the best Christian that I know. And I'm not like, you know, I know what you're saying though. For uh, sure. It's amazing having a a spouse that I, that has what I want, you know? Yeah. I, I, I do struggle with like, yeah, the word hero isn't great, but someone who is a little bit ahead of me on the, on the path of following Jesus, who I could be like, okay, I'm not I'm not walking this alone and I'm not going to be disappointed and and lonely in trying to follow and trying to follow Jesus and there's going to be other people who um but I'll tell you you know being at Christianity today being you know I'm on pastoring my church you know preaching occasionally like there's an intimidation factor and in like you know like I I don't want being a dad probably is the a number one thing of like I do not want to let I do not want to destroy people's faith by messing up myself so like I don't want to be a hero but I also, uh, I also. <laughs> you want to be a role model, I think. You want to be a role model. What's the, yeah, what's the difference between a role model and a hero? Ruth, you got, oh, you figure wow. that one out? Yeah. Well, I mean, I do think maybe the, 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 the word that is problematic is hero. Another word I use in my life, which rings really true for me, is to have people in my life that I would call my teachers. And it seems like that's, you know, that's one step down off the pedestal. I mean, heroes, you put them probably way up there a little bit too high. But for us to have teachers, people from whom we learn, that I think that's a really life-giving idea to me and doesn't set the expectations so high that there's all the disappointment. I've been thinking about the fact that maybe the, you know, a spirituality of imperfection could come into the conversation right here that if if we can accept that while we're here on this earth, there is a certain spirituality of imperfection where God's power is seen more clearly through our own weakness. But if someone's on a a serious transformational journey, a serious journey of self-knowledge, a serious journey of confession, a serious journey of seeing their own negative patterns and being willing to confess those towards the light. There won't be perfection, but there's a consistency in terms of where their life is headed. And I find myself more inspired by that idea. Where, where I see someone who is on a serious journey of grappling with their humanity in God's presence and doing that openly and honestly, rather than some of the hiddenness that I'm seeing in, this, in some of the stories that have come out recently is that there's been a tremendous amount of hiddenness. And that doesn't strike me as being an authentic journey. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I I do want to talk about the hiddenness when you're talking about seeing things from people. So we're in a world, right, where... We can read books without meeting people, listen to podcasts without meeting people, ever having a personal relationship with them. Who do people need to be seen by ultimately for this type of accountability system in your eyes to work? Because obviously I don't think that it's also healthy. I think I'm thinking of some of Andy Crouch's work here for leaders to hang up all their dirty laundry right. in front of people that they have no actual relationship Absolutely. with. And we leaders are entitled to their privacy. And I and I see privacy as being different than hiddenness. Mm-hmm. Let's just be clear. Okay. People who live in the public and live in the limelight, they deserve to have some places in their lives that are private. I'm really all about 
you know, healthy privacy and that we all have the opportunity for that. But that's where I think, again, I'm going to come back to the spiritual direction relationship because that relationship is intended to be outside our normal circles. And it is a place where that person doesn't have any other vested interest in you except to help you to be on the journey with God and to say yes to God's invitations in your life. And if that is a truly safe relationship and there is a code of ethics that governs the spiritual direction relationship, just as the psychological, the therapist relationship, you know, if we can have one place where we can bring these things out into the light, that in itself, the, the way that we dispel darkness is by turning on a light switch and spiritual direction becomes a place where you get to turn on a light switch and have somebody who you allow to see you in all aspects of your life, even the stuff that typically you might keep hidden or might you know, feel ashamed about in the light of a spiritual director's gaze in the light of a spiritual director's love, mediating God's love, I believe. There's a lot of darkness that can be dispelled in and through that one relationship, which is why I talk about spiritual direction as being a vital practice for Christian leaders. I mean, really almost a non-negotiable if you want to stay the course and, and stay on your own journey of transformation, stay on your own journey of encounter with God while you are leading others. You've just got to have this place outside the limelight where you can bring your whole self and that by itself. Sure. And like you were saying, where someone is not going to have any stake and yes. your publishing career continuing right. or your outside mm-hmm. brand. Now that I know that you've seen so many different people or leaders off, right? And kind of gotten a sense of really who they are underneath there. What is actually reasonable in your opinion as far as character expectations for leaders? You know, I mean, I'm sure people tell you all different types of things that feel all different sorts of cruel to ugly to just unhealthy. At what point do you say like, this is an area that you need to keep working on? And what is like, whoa, that is disqualifying from ministry right away. And, you know, as for people like us that are not sitting with these stories from our leaders, what is actually reasonable to hold them to? Well, one thing I think is reasonable to hold them to is that they are on an intentional journey of transformation. I mean, and there are all sorts of practices that go along with that kind of an intentional journey, spiritual direction being one of them. And then a good spiritual director, a wise spiritual director is going to know those areas of life that need psychological intervention and will be really encouraging strongly encouraging a pastor or a leader to deal with things on a psychological level that need to be dealt with. In, in my own work with people and in the work that I want someone to do with me, to be guided to our highest and truest and best selves would be part and parcel of the definition of what you're doing in spiritual direction, is that you're calling someone to the highest and best version of themselves in God. And so that would mean speaking about morality, you know, what is moral, what is good. And what I mean by the word good is what leads us and others towards God, what leads us and others away from God, which would be evil to be responsible with oneself and one's leadership. You know, Parker Palmer has said that a leader is someone who must take special responsibility for what goes on inside his or her consciousness, lest the act of leadership do more harm than good. It is a responsibility of leadership to take responsibility for oneself and one's negative patterns and one's immoral behaviors, one's meanness, and to have regular and routine ways of opening that up before God for God's transforming work. That I expect out of a spiritual leader. And I think it's warranted. I think we're not expecting perfection, but we're expecting someone to be intentionally journeying in a transforming way in the presence of God and others. Ted, I actually would like to hear from you on this question too. We may kind of make our own bar, right? Because we have to choose what we're going to cover. It's not like you and I haven't heard things about particular leaders and then we have to decide, is this newsworthy? Which is almost kind of our own expectations feeding into this I think maybe if we found out that such and such big name leader was viewing pornography, we might be like disappointed. I don't know if we would necessarily think that that would be an unreasonable type of thing if they got mad from time to time. I I don't know, though, if 
I, I'd be curious to know how your own expectations for how leaders should behave has changed and what you actually think is reasonable as well. Yeah, I think news judgment's one thing, right? Because I think prominence matters a lot, both That's in fair. the news value, but also in a spiritual care environment. Like if you are in a mode where you you can your moral failure can wipe out the people that you are in direct contact with and also like severely damage the faith of tons of people who are watching you. I think that the bar is a little bit higher for what what CT might look at. I'm encouraged by the number of stories that we have done about churches taking anger seriously and taking not just anger seriously, but judgmentalism, you know, wrath to uh, subordinates and that kind of thing. I'm happy that that conversation has entered and that people like John Piper have uh, led the way to say, I need to take a break uh, and get this under control. I think that's awesome. And I really would love to see more more pastors. And that's an evidence that. of self-responsibility. Self-respons- yeah. Taking responsibility for myself as part of my leadership. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And to have, you know, people in your church who are like, hey, have you looked at this? Because it seemed like you're getting angrier than you used to. And, you know, anger is, oh man, is anger, anger tricky. I mean, on this, on the Vanier thing in particular, like that's the one thing that I'm, I've been wrestling with, That both that James question of anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I'm like, yeah. But also, like, yeah, this Vanier thing is worth getting mad about. And so, you know, I think there's a wrestling with that. But I think that there's a there's a way in which, you know, I mean, you look at all the New Testament warnings about leaders getting angry. And I think that, that we don't, maybe don't, maybe we don't take that seriously enough. But sexuality, where, where we've talked about a lot of this stuff. Yeah, generally speaking, if we, if we know of a pastor's significant sexuality, you know, sexual, sexual sin, because that's... There's all sorts of reasons why I think that, that that's important to take seriously as a pastor because it's it's violating something with your church. It's violating something that is pretty pretty core in ways that I think deception or or a gambling problem or some of those other things might might be take a break take a break issues. But yeah, anger. You know, let's talk, let's talk about that for a second. Like what there is there is an easy cop out that I keep hearing when we talk about sin and leaders. That is like you know wow this person sinned pretty egregiously. And then the response being like, well, but you know, yes, you know, I guess I'm kind of self-righteous about their, you know, egregious sin. So I guess, hey, we're all sinners. There's kind of a flattening of, of that. And I, I have a hard time sometimes knowing to what degree anger, anger is the right response to injustice and to what degree um, it can become its own it can be distracting. It can be distra- it can be distracting from my relationship with God because certainly there's a, there are moments in which I get self righteous and I get angry and I want to stay in that anger rather than uh, handing it over to God and I want to have this attitude of uh, everybody's everybody's stupid except for me. So yeah, that's something. I mean, how do you how do you work with that with leaders when they have something at the center worth being legitimately worth being righteously angry about? Yeah. Well, I think the trick is to be angry and not sin, right? I mean, wow. and to really explore. Easier said than done. <laughs> yes, that's what I mean. I think that's one of the greatest challenges is it's very easy to be angry and self-righteous. It's not so easy to be angry and not sin. And so to explore what it would look like to be angry and not sin, because anger is an important emotion. When we are angry, it often signifies that there's something really wrong that needs to be paid attention to. So we don't want to flatten that emotion. But if we can be angry and not sin, so be angry and not lash out, be angry and not be self-righteous, be angry and you know, not lie. I mean, be is angry it okay and to do be angry at a dead guy? What? I mean, I mean, is it, I mean, I, I mean, would we agree that it's, I mean, the thing I'm wrestling, I'm angry, that, but the guy's dead. Like there's nothing, there's nowhere to put this anger. There's nothing to do with this anger. Um, it's going to, it could come out sideways. 
at, you know, Lark. I'm like, when did Lark know this? And start getting mad about all that. I can, but I'm like, I don't know. What's this anger doing? What's this anger doing? I mean, I, I, it, it, I suppose it could lead me to think about things or work towards greater justice, but I don't know. Is anger the, a good starting place for in a, in a case like this? Apparently from scripture, there is such a thing as righteous anger, right? So we could explore what is righteous anger. And I think part of what righteous anger is, is the desire to protect victims, the desire to make sure that others are not victimized like that again. It can come out of a place that doesn't have to be self-righteous, cynical, mm-hmm. bitter. I don't know. I think you kind of answered this question. Ted wrote an editorial a couple of years ago that we called, if you see something, say something. Yeah. That to me was an answer to part of that, right? Using a platform that you had to kind of call the church to be a reminder on this and to give them. I don't know. I'm not yeah, sure yeah. how angry you were when you wrote that. that, but was that in the, yeah, that was in the middle of my unbroken, that was at the end of my unbroken But that seems to me like a, a, a great manifestation of how that turned out, right? Was you had an ability to stick up for people. And to that use it for the good and to bring out something that needs to be brought out. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that, you know, ideally we're, you know, using all of our energies in those, in those kinds of ways, I guess. And I guess, you know, different people are driven by different things, right? I mean, sadness can drive us to the same thing and, and uh, compassion can drive us to the same thing. There's a really, there's an interesting book that argues that there is no such thing as righteous anger among, among humans uh, in, in scripture. Like all the good examples are God or Jesus. And that, all, you know, that it's, you know, you, you know, you just are righteous anger too often. You wrote this book on Moses, right? Mm-hmm. Moses is a classic yes. example of a guy yeah. who has all sorts of occasions to to do righteous mm-hmm. anger, he, to to be righteously angry. But he just over and over and over again uh, kills someone. <laughs> well, he, he kills someone, right? He kills someone because of, because of, because of his anger about injustice. That he, sees. Mm-hmm. he smashes the rock mm-hmm. because he's like these guys are you know these Israelites are so you know full of disbelief. I'll show them. He break the Ten Commandments. He busts the ten. He busts the ten commandments out of idolatry. I mean, just, you know, Moses is a great example of someone who uh, has a hard time separating his anger at unrighteousness from, you know, righteous anger. I, any, you wrote the book, any lessons there? Well, one thing that I will say is that in his early life, when he did the, the killing and he mur- he'd had that murderous rage, I think that his anger was the anger that came from all that was unresolved within him and it was out of control. It was unrefined. It was volatile. It couldn't be used for good in that state. So he runs because people around him have seen the evidence that he's a murderer, really, and that his anger is out of control. And there are real reasons for that. You know, Moses was a victim in his life. He was born into a dangerous environment. He was ripped from his family at a very young age. He was displaced and raised in the royal court that was not his. And so he had a lot of unresolved anger. And I think he's a great example of what happens in and through unresolved anger. But then there's this this next part after he goes to Midian, he settles down by the well, Solitude begins to do its good work. He begins to settle down a little bit. He's able to help the the shepherd girls water their sheep. There's unruly shepherds who are preventing them from getting close to the well. He's able to actually help without killing anyone, which is what I call leadership transformation at its best, you know, is when we can take that energy because anger is an energy, right? Anger is just an energy within us and energy can be channeled. And I think that that anger, the, the energy of anger can be channeled towards good things in the life of someone who has a heart for justice like Moses did. And so even though he moved in and out of volatility, there were also many more moments in his life where he used his strong emotions, his sense of injustice, his desire for justice, when he used that for positive good, for positive helping. So I think anger is just an energy that needs to be harnessed and used in good ways. I think about the civil rights movement. 
I mean, there's a movement where anger was channeled in good ways by many of those who participated. And of course, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who championed nonviolence, was actually working with that. Yeah, there's really good reason for Black people to be angry, but let's look at our method. What are we going to do with our energy? And here's a method that will enable us to be really productive with this you know, the energy that we have around the injustice that we've experienced. Can our anger be drawn from love and then channeled mm-hmm. back into love? Right. Is that that core question. And I think that's where, you know, it gets derailed. Well, but, you know, I, I can identify in my own life where I can identify anger that is either from a place of fear, like you mentioned, or, or just a, a self-preservation kind of anger that's from a place different than love. And then I can maybe channel that back into love for whoever I'm angry at. Or there's a there's a true love of the victim that then I just stew on the anger for too long and it's hard to channel that back into love for the victim or love for 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 others. So I think that's uh, having having written this thing on on Moses. I mean, do you see a different? Is there any difference? I want to go back to some of the questions about the heroes or role models or or teachers. Is there a difference in the way in which we look at people like Moses in Scripture and the way in which I might look at, you know, my pastor or a Christian leader that I, whose teaching I enjoy in terms of learning from them, learning from the, both the, oh, I don't want to emulate these problems in their life. And I do want to be learn like from them. their, I want yeah. to be like them. Is there, is there a difference in the way we should look at biblical characters like Moses and we should look at people today? Cause we don't know everything. I mean, you know, part of it, I want to say like, well, you know, the Bible presents certain things about Moses to teach us. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, there's a lot of stuff about Moses we don't know. And I, there's also a lot of stuff about Joe that I don't know. You know, I think to stay in touch with the utter humanity of our existence. I mean, all of us while we're here on this earth are human. We're never going to fully transcend our humanity. So can I receive the good gifts from someone's life and be inspired by them while at the same time, not not elevating them to a place that's not appropriate. They're not God. Nobody here on this earth is going to be that, right? And so when I'm in touch with my own human experience, my own foibles, the limits of my own person, when I can be compassionate towards myself, I'm able to be compassionate towards others when their humanity expresses itself in ways that are limited without having to throw out the baby with the bathwater and throw out absolutely everything. Now, I do think we're in a particularly hard period of time here where we really are looking at long-term patterns of abuse and exploitation and oppressed oppression of those who are in subordinate roles. And it is a grief. And, and, you know, as a woman, I mean, most of us as women have had to experience things that make us very angry. But I don't find just a very strident, bitter sort of anger to be anything helpful in the journey right now. But I am, I do channel the anger that I feel sometimes. I do channel it towards wanting to look at the systems that are producing this and wanting to work really, really hard with the systems. Rather than being angry at individuals right now, although there will be reason to be, I actually am letting... The, the intense emotions that I have about these things propel me to want to look at what are the systems and is there, is there any other better vision for this and what's it going to take and what is God doing? I mean, the question from John 9, you know, this is a very broken moment in our, in our church history right now. It's broken. But is there anything that God's trying to do right now? And I feel some hope. I, I will be honest. This stuff is really dark and it's hard to look at. But I think the fact that it's there's this proliferation of all these revelations and things like that, we can't ignore this conversation anymore. We can't ignore these darker human dynamics. We can't ignore the systems that have produced it. So is God going to do something new? Is God clearing something out? Is God clearing the decks for something better? So even though I feel angry sometimes, I also am allowing myself some hope that there are conversations happening now that wouldn't be happening 
if it wasn't for the proliferation of these revelations, right? We can't ignore it anymore. So here we are having to talk about it because we have to, because we can't pretend it doesn't happen. We can't sweep it under the rug. What is God going to do in this moment of our history in Christian community? Do you, one thing I've wrestled with is rejoicing in what's happening. Like saying like, oh, you know, like I'm super glad that light is being shown on these things and that these things are coming, these things are coming out and that, you know, people who have had to hide their stories can now tell their stories. I'm, one of the things I wrestle with is like how much, I'm a journalist, I work in Christianity today, I hear so much God talk that makes me real nervous. Uh, at the same time, like I, there is a sense in me that I'm like, ah, man, it just sure feels like the spirit is doing something here. Of this spirit is behind shining this light. I'm, I'm, I'm nervous about attributing all of the, you know, you know, Me Too movement or all of these things to the Holy Spirit. But I don't know, like the Battle Hymn of the Republic, this idea of he is tramping out of the vineyard where the grapes of wrath are stored. I, I'm like, yeah, like. Sir, seems like that's what's happening and bring it on. Like, I mean, you know, you know, Lord have mercy at the same time. But yes, like, please, please clean house. Clean house. Yes. Sweep out the dark corners. I, you, you know, know, let it begin with me, I guess, is a yeah. scary thing to say. But uh, I, I don't know. Do you, you know, when you when you think about these things, are you, do you want to hold it as like, I'm rejoicing that this thing is happening? Or do you see, do you, do you try to talk in broader spiritual language about like, God may be doing this? Yeah. I mean, I don't rejoice. I, I, I think it's very hard to rejoice in these things right now because they are really, really dark. You know, I've been close to many of the situations that have, where there've been revelations over the last while. And so I know the people and I love the people and I care about the people. And so the suffering, the real suffering that people are going through, whose stories are bringing all this out, it's, it's a very, it's a tender place. It's a sad place. You hurt, you hurt for what people are going through to have to bring out the stories. I, I do feel a sense that God, there's an aspect of our life together in Christian community that hasn't been right. Relationships between men and women relationships between sexuality, spirituality, and power, it hasn't been right. And we've lived it this way for a long, long time. We are going to be changed after this. We are going to be changed. I believe it because we can't sweep it under the rug anymore and women's voices are being heard and the stories are being told and we're learning how to listen rather than dismiss. And we're not getting away with things that used to people used to be getting away with. And the light is, is coming. The light is coming into a very dark aspect of our life together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I do feel some hope in that. I do feel like we're going to be changed. We're going to be different after we get through this dark place. And and I think many people have a contribution to make right now. There are some books being written and conversations being had where there is more anger being expressed. That's necessary because some of these things really do warrant anger. And that's that's one kind of voice. But then there'll be other kinds of voices that will have a different tone. And each one of the voices will bring something to this particular moment in our Christian history. And I expect from the standpoint of our standpoint of history, I think we're going to look back at this time as being very significant, as being a watershed moment, as being a time when a sea sea change began around issues of gender, men and women in community together, men and women in leadership together, sexuality, spirituality, and power. We will look back and the conversation will be different forever. And there will be systems and policies and safety safety nets and safeguards put in place that will always be there now because of what we had have had to wrestle with in this moment. I just want to close with a question about victims and survivors here. Obviously, again, we're, we're so hurt by these things because many times we loved the people who ended up doing these, the perpetrators, right? And so whether we loved their theological explorations, loved their podcasts or sermons or books, right? They they offered something that we felt was revelatory and important. 
And I'm just wondering, what does it mean to really look out for victims and survivors in here when it comes to still wanting to be able to quote these perpetrators or <laughs> I don't think we're going to get into the conversation of reinstalling them in leadership right now, though we've obviously seen that happen and be an extreme example or of that. Or they reinstall themselves somewhere. Absolutely. <laughs> but but what might it mean for people like us who are a little bit on the outside mm-hmm. as far as what we might need to give up mm-hmm. to truly support you know, the, the victims and survivors. Yeah, we may, I, I think, you know, in some of the settings that I'm familiar with, there's this desire, can we just get on with it? Why can't we just get on with it? That's what the people that are, you know, one or two or three steps outside, can we just get on with it and just do what we used to do? And I think part of the price that has to be paid there is that we don't get on with it too quickly, that we actually make sure that all the work that needed to be done gets done. That I know there's there's been real disappointment in the, that in some of the places where power and sexuality has been misused, that the victims weren't even ever given a chance to speak on their own behalf. We need to let them speak on their own behalf. We need to let them tell their stories. We need to have real confessions, real confessions from not just the perpetrators, but the systems that allowed these things to happen over years of time. Where are the confessions? The question of what do we need to do to make it right? You know, as it relates to the spiritual practice of self-examination leading to confession, I believe the very last part of that is the question, what do we need to do to make it right? So that question needs to be being asked of the people who have suffered and then let them answer the question, you know, you know, find a way to offer that thing which they say would be most healing to them. Just even being believed and getting to tell your story is a really powerful experience. I think these are things that the congregations or the organizations or the systems that are in place to create enough space for these things and not just try to rush on. Because when you hear a line, a headline like a victim's life has been ruined forever, like you hear some of these kinds of statements we're not giving very much time and space to people whose lives will never be the same. So I think not to rush on and to ask, to let them speak, to ask them what needs to be done to be made right. And then to to the best of our ability, offer it. I think those are some of the ways we can really respect the experiences and honor the, the victims. Well, thank you so much, Ruth and Ted. It was great to hear from you guys during this discussion. I think it got pretty candid and I'm sure many of our listeners are going to see themselves in the ways that we were trying to process all of this. People can respond to anything we talked about today. We're at podcast at christianity.com. You also can find us at CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show we call Precious Moments. We ask everyone to share something that has brought them joy recently. Ted, are you ready? I am ready. You know, a few weeks ago, I mentioned that we got a new fireplace, a gas fireplace in our house after many years of not having a fire. And it's been fantastic. And, you know, the other thing I often talk about in my precious moments is board games. And let me tell you, there's nothing like a fire to get the family busting out the board games. and saying, Let's, We did a double, last night we did a double header board game night with the family. And it was uh, it was great. So the two recommendations I have for listeners, one is New York Slice. Very fast, speedy game. I, I pick, you choose. You have like a, some pizzas. Uh, one person puts the pizza together and the next person divides it into pieces. And the next person gets first pick of those pieces. Uh, the different pieces are worth different points. Fantastic game. Super fast. Highly recommended. Very casual, but strategic as well. And then we played Potion Explosion, which is like... You know those uh, dumb like Candy Crush games on, <laughs> on your mobile device? It's like that, the board game with a bunch of marbles. Very fun. You know, my 10-year-old loves it. My son who loves super complicated games loves it. So, yeah, board game night in front of the fire. This is my chef's kiss. Sounds precious. Frequent precious mm-hmm. moment right now with the family. And people can find you. I'm on Twitter at Ted Olson. 
Olson with an E. All right, Ruth. Um, this week was a really busy week this last seven days with two significant speaking engagements. I had one day to recover myself between one and the next. And we ended up having an almost 50 degree day here in Chicago. That was precious. That was was precious. I'm telling you. And so we were able to find time, my husband and I, to get out and go for a walk outside, which in Chicago in February, man, you got to you got to take notice of that. And so I found myself revisiting that moment quite a bit and just how nice it was to be outside and walking. It makes me look forward to better things ahead, but that was a very replenishing moment. And I thank God for it. That's awesome. Where can people find you outside of this? The transformingcenter.org would be a, a good place to find me and find us. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram and Twitter. So you can find all those handles by visiting our website, www.transformingcenter.org. I was in Los Angeles over the weekend, or I guess more specifically SoCal, and I would say the entire trip was a precious moment, but a couple of things that I wanted to highlight was, so I had the opportunity to go to Biola and meet with a professor at Talbot Seminary. His name is Octavia Escada. He has been a source in one of my stories that I worked on about Cuba because he did some of his research on Cuba, and then he's also written a couple times for CT, and it was really great to just hear about his experiences and eat dinner with his family and and talk to him as well. Also, Biola is a very cool campus and I'd never been there before. And then I had a second dinner after that with my mom's cousin. His name is Paul Kack. He is an admin or an, an admin, I guess, teaching role at Azusa Pacific. And so I felt like I had a very Christian college evening. And it was fun to connect with him about my world here, which sometimes is not really part of family conversations. But to bring that into that space, I felt very blessed to have those conversations back to back. Both of them had nice things to say about CT. Wonderful. So clearly not a bad evening whatsoever. It sounds like Disneyland was pretty precious as well. Okay, Disneyland was also awesome. But you know, I'm just trying to <laughs> yeah, yeah, trying no, to balance cla- it out. Class up the joint. I talked about board games. You're like, I gotta I gotta talk about it. No, everyone wants me to die. You know. Exactly. No. Ted is right. But I already kinda tweeted about it. But yes, Disneyland does not disappoint. I completely agree. All right, people can find me on Twitter. I'm at M E P A Y N L. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. It's produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The transcript comes from Boonmi Ishola. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts. Please continue to rate and review the show. That is what helps people find it. But you can also get the podcast wherever podcasts are available. If you also want to support the show by getting a subscription to Christianity Today magazine, that is available at orderct.com slash podcasts. And again, thank you for everyone who has already done that. We will see you all next week. This episode is brought to you by the Wheaton College Graduate School. Respected and represented the world over, our more than 20 degrees and certificates at the Wheaton College Graduate School will inspire, challenge, and equip you to be a servant scholar for Christ and His kingdom. Learn more at wheaton.edu QTL.